0: Welcome to the Ellen B. Show. I'm Ellen, your host for this great talk show that informs no fake information here. If you love old-fashioned conversation about all kinds of people, events, and issues, then you've come to the right place. Join me and my guests as we explore. I'm coming to you from kzsm.org in San Marcos, Texas. KZSM is true community radio. My show airs on Thursdays from 7 to 8, and my encores are on Mondays from 8 to 9, all on kzsm.org. If you want, you can also follow me on Anchor, that's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash the l b Show. So before I start talking with my guests, I'm going to do a disclaimer. The opinions expressed on this show are those of its hosts and guests and not of the opinions of KZSM or its governing body. SMTX C R A. Okay. In today's fast-paced internet world, a smart voter is more important than ever to help people voters get as much voting information about local elections as possible, I have invited Maxfield Baker, who is running for city council, place one, to be my guest for today's show. So without further delay, help me welcome Maxfield Baker, running for city council, place one, and let us use this time to learn as much about him as possible. Okay, Maxfield, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's get started. I read your written biography, and boy, have you done a lot of things. So let's start at the beginning, like where you were born, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Right. Uh, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and moved to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico when I was two years old, and then lived there till I was about four. And from there, I moved to the Rio Grande Valley and lived on South Padre, Laguna Vista, and then finally my family found our lifelong home in San Benito, Texas. I moved to San Marcos in 2007 to pursue my degree at Texas State University and achieved a bachelor's degree in political science as well as anthropology with a bachelor of arts.
0: Wow, you were busy.
1: Yeah, I I double majored and spent some time in the Associated Student Government as well. Um, which is where I really had the fire put in me to be a public servant, you know, representing students and fighting to cut costs where we can and encourage responsible growth. Those are issues that face Texas state as well. And so I realized very quickly that I had a passion for giving people's voice a megaphone and you know the the willingness to step into that light and, and fight for those causes.
0: Did you have to work while you went to school?
1: Yes, uh, I worked for the university at the LBJ Student Center as an events coordinator. Um, basically, we set up all the tables and chairs in the LBJ ballroom. We actually set up the voting centers every election cycle. We'd help make sure that they were taken care of and had all the power they needed. Um, and worked with student organizations, inhabit the university.
0: Did you help get people uh, elected?
1: Yes. I. Uh, in that time when I found my passion for public service, uh, I also interned for Kim Porterfield um, back in the day. And that's what really got me involved with campaigns in general, doing block walking. Uh, I've been working on campaigns since 2010.
0: Oh, wow. It's 2019. Nine years.
1: Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of public service in that realm.
0: Okay, so to help people make up their minds whether to vote for you or not, I'm going to ask you some specific issues that affect the people of San Marcos, okay? Great. All right, so let's talk about the role of the planning board and what it plays in our lives. Like, what is the planning board? Because you've been on it.
1: Yeah, I serve as a planning and zoning commissioner. I got appointed by city council back in 2017. uh, And, you know, our job there is to we look at zoning requests, uh, conditional use permits, some ordinances come before us. And our job is to look at the metrics that city staff gives us. And then through our, you know, there is a little bit of subjectivity there. We're able to say whether or not we think that it's a good fit for San Marcos.
0: So is this a, was this a full-time job?
1: No, the the it's a volunteer position, um, and so we were appointed by city council, and we meet once every other Tuesday, sort of alternating with the city council meetings in the exact same spot.
0: What happens, like a corporation will come before you or a person will come before you and say that they want to do something?
1: Right. Uh, so, you know, if the zoning is in place for a developer to build what they want, then they don't have to come before either planning and zoning or city council. The the zoning's in place. They can just build it as per the guidelines for that zoning. Who
0: puts the zoning in place?
1: A lot of our zoning was established several years ago. We do have every once in a while the opportunity to, like we saw, I want to say five, six years ago with our downtown, they rezoned all of that smart zoning um, from Guadalupe all the way up to the highway. Um, so the zoning kind of, it's historically in place. Uh, we, every once in a while, we'll have a request to change that zoning, and that's, that's where it comes into play. If somebody wants to build something that doesn't automatically fit that zoning, say they want to go from a single-family zoning to a multifamily and build an apartment complex, they right. would at that point need to work with the planning and zoning staff um, and then bring it before us and, and petition us to make that change.
0: Okay, because recently there's a lot of building from the college, a lot of dorm building, and some one of them is very tall. Uh, where did they get uh, so, permission to do that? Or
1: So I think you might be referring to the complex right by Italian Garden, is that uh-huh. correct, kind of downtown? So that is actually not a Texas State University project. The university is not under the auspices of our watch. They, We don't decide their planning and zoning issues. The university can just build whatever it wants on its own property to whatever height and design standards they like. you kidding. No, no that's, that's one of the contentious issues we face is we'll even have developers tell us that if we don't approve their zoning, and this is maybe the most frustrating thing I've run into, that if we don't approve the rezone for the land that they're looking at, that they could sell it to the university and the university could build whatever they want. Now, the, the project you're referring to has, uh, it's, it's kind of been chilling on the back burner for a long time. It is Concho Commons. It's a 13 story building and it's going to have a target built inside of it
0: a target um, what
1: uh, like a target like a target shop of uh, uh, the retail store target. you're kidding me. no there there's a model for it up in austin near the ut campus and so I, I, like I, I
0: really need a target
1: <laughs> well you know that that's an instance where i think i'm kind of glad that it's there because it will service not only the texas state students but also the residents that live in that building removing some of that traffic is going to be beneficial because they'll have a place that they can just walk to for most of their needs you know their school supplies that kind of stuff some food um you know that way they're they're not having to go necessarily to our hebs and that other kind of stuff
0: that's true i wonder how heb feels about it
1: yeah yeah they're they as far as i know they've been kind of silent about it you know for for that building that was passed several years ago under what's called a planned development district, which we shortened to PDD. And a lot of folks were frustrated with that process, because basically what that allows you to do is you take the zoning that you have in place, and you are essentially able to, through incentives and agreements with the city, sort of go around and circumvent that zoning to build a a specific project with specific limitations on it and so several years ago we saw a glut of these come before our planning staff that were you know essentially being rubber stamped and we're just seeing several of them come to completion
0: are those the other buildings
1: um uh no it it it's i'm trying to remember what other ones were came in under that but i think it was like seven of them all at once and that that concho commons sat empty for years and years and just started being built you know within the past year or two part of the concern with it is you know and our our fire department works very closely with these developers right um but part of the concern is that the height of that building does not allow it to be serviced by our fire department if that catches on fire they cannot ethically send their people in to take care of it. You know, when they're when they're fighting fires, they have a limited amount of oxygen that they can take into a burning building, and they have to be able to rotate out teams. And what the fire chief explained to me is that even at a smaller complex, like we saw at the iconic apartment complex up there on North LBJ that caught fire just a few right. years ago, even in that situation, they're so limited on staff that they weren't able to properly manage that fire. They... The chief said he got in there and they were surrounded and they, they had to pull their men out just ethically. They could not go any further into that. So
0: the people who are going to rent at this new complex, do they know that if there's a fire?
1: That's a, a an interesting question. And the fire chief explained to me that they are going through the process of, just like food restaurants get grades, that they're going through our buildings, starting with the city to make sure that the city is compliant first And then going out to these different apartment complexes to give them a grade. One thing that I would like to advocate for is to make that public. I think it is, I I find it unethical essentially to let students move in without that knowledge. Just like when people live in flood areas, they need to be told that at the time of purchase that, hey, you live in a flood zone. You're going to need flood insurance, right? These folks should know that same information about the risk they're taking living there.
0: So do you think that'll be made public the information
1: that, That's hard to say you know if if it's theoretically if it's being conducted by our fire department, it should be subject to FOIA requests but I think that's the only way we're gonna see that information
0: so the so the um, college does not own that property correct
1: uh, so if, who owns it if I remember it might be a Carson property or a I don't think it's Carson. I, I, I'm having a okay, hard time okay, it the but name it's it.
0: okay, but it's not a college, right? I thought the college somebody's going to make a lot of money, right? Well, for of that one,
1: yeah, and and you know, frankly, the infrastructure right around there is such that you know the traffic is going to be, you know, untenable in my opinion. There, with Guadalupe, you know, being a small two way there, um, and then the other side street, they they're just not going to. I think that's going to be more of a headache than they realize.
0: And the city has no authority.
1: Uh, I mean, we because the zoning had already been decided, we couldn't turn back and and right. deny their PDD. Right. Um, so, yeah, we, we're sort of stuck with the decisions of the past.
0: Okay. Well, here's another one. Bicycle lanes. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm a driver, and it's making it very hard for me in uh, San Marcos to drive.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm an avid cyclist. I, I love to get around on my bike. Um, and, you know, I, I struggle with bicycle lanes myself. Um, you know, the struggles as a cyclist that we see are oftentimes we are riding in, when, when we do have bicycle lanes, they're obstructed with trash. Sometimes cars are parked in them. And so I oftentimes will just, take the lane like is my right you know i as a cyclist we have the right to a full lane and and cars in some regards need to respect that and so my struggle with these bike lanes is that and and we see people on you know facebook and stuff complain about this is that we don't really have that big of a biking culture first of all to really justify it um you know we we don't see a ton of people out there on their cycles we don't and the idea is you know if you build it they will come but part of the struggle is you know it's it is heavily informed by cycling organizations um but some of the concerns that i have are that it is it's sort of working against us if if we're like I, I think maybe what you might be referring to is the Guadalupe one that just got repainted. Oh. Right. So that's that's been I mean the
0: car is like sticking out in the street.
1: Yeah. And and so, you know, and, and the idea of a two way bike lane, I've never utilized something like that. I don't I don't really understand the purpose of it. I think it's kind of interesting that we have the I was, I was cycling over there the other day and we have the parking spaces open and ready to use, but the bike lanes are still blocked off by cones and stuff, which is just again reflective of what we see with bike lanes is that they're often obstructed and not very useful to us. Plus, in an area like there on Guadalupe where the traffic tends to be more start and stop and slow... As a cyclist, that's the perfect place for me to be because I can take a lane and I'm not really slowing down traffic that much. You know, to me, bike lanes belong on major thoroughfares like on C.M. Allen. That is absolutely my favorite bike path in San Marcos, it's not blocked by cars. It's a long distance where you can really just get going and not worry about a car door opening and knocking you off. It happens to people. Oh, it and, does. Huh? Yeah, it's you know you when you're cycling, you have to be a hundred percent aware, um, you know, because you don't have a big steel frame around you to keep you safe if you fall. And a lot of cyclists also don't wear their helmets, you know, so. I think that that should be the focus of our bike lanes is to put them on these longer streets instead of, you know, totally changing this little downtown area where, you know, frankly, the, the cycles were doing fine. And my other issue is with cycle with bicycle lanes is as a cyclist. You're stuck in this lane and everybody expects you to be there now because that's your lane. But if you need to turn, you have to cross traffic to make your turn, right? So right. there on Guadalupe, if I'm turning right down Hopkins to yeah, head how are towards Wonderworld, you have to now cross through parked cars, and then cross through traffic to get over into that lane. That's why, as a cyclist, I prefer to just stay in the lane that I'm supposed to be in to make the upcoming turn that I need to do.
0: So we're going to just jump just a little bit. Okay, so Sid is waving uh, his brake card. So we got to take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll uh, talk more with uh, Maxfield, and uh, we'll continue talking about bikes and bike lanes. See you in a bit.
2: Howdy, howdy, y'all. This is Tina, your host of the 5 O'Clock Friday Show. Join me every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. I'll bring you some fantastic music in rock, country, hip-hop, blues, and more. Don't forget to catch my updates in traffic and community events that are going on around town. The 5 O'Clock Friday Show, every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. on KZSN.org.
0: Okay, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the L&B show, and I'm talking with Maxfield Baker, who's running for city council place one in San Marcos, and we're talking about bike lanes. Who who decides? Who decided about these bike lanes? Yeah, was our- there any input from drivers? Uh, pedestrians
1: so so we do have a pretty vocal biking community there's a move smtx group that is focused on you know creating more safety for bicyclists and for pedestrians in general Um, a lot of these projects are funded by our transportation department and (laughs) txdot as well so know we have sort of regional partnerships that are helping guide some of these decisions and, and get the paint on the ground so to speak our our job as city council members is to think all the way through a situation right we need to make sure that the the paint we put on the ground the the concrete we pour doesn't need to be redone and redone and redone right and so there there was some public outreach for these although you know it's it's tough to make it to these, and sometimes it's hard to even keep abreast of when they're coming up. While there was a lot of support from cyclists, I don't think it was something that a lot of drivers necessarily made an effort to attend, because they they didn't think that it was going to impact them in such a drastic way.
0: Wow. Because the uh, KZSM studio is on Guadalupe. We came there a couple of weeks ago, and we noticed, you know, all the lines and everything... And then so they put the bike lane against the sidewalk, which is safe for them. But then they stuck the cars out in the street. So now I'm afraid if I open my door and a car comes by, psh, there goes my car or there goes my back.
1: Right. And and mm-hmm. as a cyclist, too, you know, like I mentioned, you might even be hit by a car door there from the driver's side now. You know, right. like a lot of times the the way that bicycle lanes are sort of situated is that it's on the passenger side of it, so that you're riding along with traffic that way. Um, uh, but now you'll have a situation with that two-way bike lane, you know, assuming we're supposed to be riding on the right, then that means you would be looking at a cyclist and, you know, hopefully see them before you open your door, but potentially be be in just as much danger that way.
0: Right. And now as a driver, I'm gonna have cyclists coming two ways at me
1: right yeah i i'm i'm interested to see how how it all pans out you know really with with what we were mentioning earlier you know we, we're not going to have such traffic in that bike lane that it's you know a marathon of bicyclists going through there right um so you know hopefully folks are going to find out the the right way to manage each other there um, but what, what i think is frustrating from a driver's perspective and for our neighborhoods is when we slow down traffic, the nature of our drivers now is such that most of them are relying on their GPS to tell them where to go, what's the fastest route. Right. And with all the traffic backing up, it's only going to be a matter of time before Google Maps's algorithm finds out, hey, this is the slow route. I'm going to route you down Hutchison through a neighborhood, and then you can get out to the highway through some other means instead of going down crowded Guadalupe. And so that's something that I think you know should have been considered by City Council council by in removing that lane and thinking about, you know, how is this going to impact our traffic patterns? While it's important to provide biking options, like I said before, I, I don't think that that's the right spot for that kind of traffic change.
0: Oh, and then, and then another thing that Sid and I always talked about was the bus. Why can't the bus that the college runs and the city run, why can't they just coordinate it and run one bus? And a smaller bus. This, the, the college has this humongous bus. And St. Marcus is so tiny. I mean, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Well, that's th- there is good news on that front. We actually have brokered a deal with the university to combine our bus systems. So oh, this, very yeah, this, good. This just happened the last year or two. The city is going to be the managing uh, entity over it as well. So we're going to see... An increase in ridership. Residents are gonna be able to ride Texas State buses, Texas State students are gonna have an option to ride carts carts buses. And what's what's interesting to me as a former student is there's really nothing currently keeping residents off of those Texas State buses. There's not a toll you pay, you don't show your student ID when you get on it, you could just hop on it already. Oh really? Um, part of the reason why they have the larger buses is because they're at capacity every one of them. As a student, I oftentimes would have to wait for maybe one or two buses to come by so that there would be room for me because they're packed like sardines.
0: Really? I didn't know that. They
1: they do have a really high ridership. The university has done a great job in in this regard of kind of managing their bus routes and and getting the most people they can on them at every time. And as far as I've heard and seen, there's very few accidents associated with them. You know, we've had a few people get clipped and and hit by them, um, but it's very few and far between.
0: Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that they were running at full capacity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, there, When I was in student government, that was a big issue for us is, hey, get more buses, get more buses. And they implemented a means to add a few more each year. To my understanding, they even have like a bit of an environmental tilt to them. They use like a certain kind of gas that makes them a little, a little healthier. Oh, good. Yeah. All
0: right. That's, that's good to know. That's good to know. I've got more questions for you. The environment and climate change.
1: Two really big issues and, and ones that are super important to me. You know, as as we think about flooding in San Marcos, which is, you know, the big issue, that is a, a component of climate change. You know, that's why we're seeing these bigger floods every year and having a harder time of engineering our way out of them. So, you know, what brought me to San Marcos in the first place was just the beauty of the river. Growing up down in the Rio Grande Valley, we don't have a lot of community focused around enriching our parks and taking care of our community in that way. And so when I saw folks gathering around those here in San Marcos, my heart was lifted and I felt like I had this new sense of pride in, in the places that I live and, and where I go. And so I've made it a point for several years now to pick up trash when I see it. Um, you know, as a college student at Sewell Park, I am adamant about, you know, picking up graduation garbage that's still there today. If you walk around... What you mean in the river? No, well, not only in the river, but all the little glitter and stuff that people throw up by the Strahan Coliseum, that is still there. You can walk around and find little pieces of it, you know, months and months later. Um, and so, you know, that has been an important part of my life here in San Marcos is being a good river steward and I'm embodying that with my campaign as well I'm trying to reduce the amount of waste that we see in campaigns and reduce that footprint because I think that you know first of all i I find it really disheartening to see how much money is spent on politics in the first place I mean you know in a in a city the size of san Marcos fact that as a city council member running in this campaign yeah. I am eligible to run to pay nineteen thousand dollars I could spend on signs and flyers and ads and all that kind of stuff pinch pennies from all my friends, I'm looking to run a much more cost effective campaign. So I have dedicated myself to doing a lot of my block walking on my bicycle for the neighborhoods that I can reach from my neighborhood, as well as I am having it printed today so that I can go up on campus and have students take a picture of my uh, push card instead of handing out one to every single one of them. And trust me, having worked on campaigns for a long time, you go through 1000s of them in even a single day. So it's incredibly important important that we be conscious of that in these elections and that we do our part as candidates to lead San Marcos by example and reduce the amount of waste that we produce. So I'm ordering fewer campaign signs and being more strategic about their placement. And like I said, I'm trying to reduce the amount of paper and stuff that I'm I'm using as well by utilizing social media and doing great interviews like these.
0: (laughs) Uh, What area are you... uh are you a place one is what area
1: Uh, so in San Marcos it's at large so the the places don't necessarily reflect a specific precinct or region anybody in San Marcos will be able to vote for me in this upcoming election
0: so why do they have place two you have place one and then you have
1: you know it's I think it's just a matter of convenience it's a question I don't really necessarily know the answer to it's spelled out in our city charter that that's the way it is and we just haven't changed it I think the idea was that at some point we might be at the uh, population cap that would necessitate moving towards something like they have in Austin where they do have specific districts for those places.
0: Okay, so there are four people running then and there are two seats?
1: In the place one race, it is myself and Mark Gleason. In place two, there are three uh, candidates, Saul Gonzalez, Lisa Marie Capoletta, and Devin Barrett.
0: So people can vote for they have to vote for just place one and then they have to vote for place two correct yeah oh okay So do you get any money? Does the city give you any money for uh, running or is it all private?
1: Yeah, for for our campaigns, correct. It's just private donations. So as a candidate, we're allowed to donate as much as we want to our campaign. Um, There's no limitation to that. For private donors, there is a $500 cap per person that we can accept. Um, And then, like I mentioned, that $19,000 is the the total limit that we're allowed to spend on our campaigns. However, as an interesting note, we saw this last year in the mayor race between John Tomides and Jane Houston. that when John Tomides had reached his campaign spending cap, some of the people that endorsed him, like realtors groups and other organizations, were able to fund their own advertisements. So those caps themselves aren't very hard set because private citizens can, through their own efforts, advertise. And, you know, just like we see at, at federal and state level elections, you know, there's there's a lot of lobbying done on these folks behalf to make sure that, you know, their, their candidate wins.
0: And then you wonder why people don't want to vote or get right. involved in politics. It's like there are loopholes for every single thing. And on that note, I think we have to break, right, Sid? Yep. Mm-hmm. OK, we'll be right back with uh, Maxfield Baker, who's running for City Council Place One in San Marcos. OK, see you in a bit. Hey, San Martians, read any good books lately? Read any bad books lately? Any books you'll never forget? Any books you want to fling directly into the trash? Whatever you've been reading or not reading, join us Tuesdays 4 to 6 for Bookmarked, all about books and reading in San Marcos and the world. Hi, if you just tuned in, welcome to the Ellen B. Show. I'm Ellen, your host for this great talk show. That informs, no fake information here. I'm gonna do another disclaimer. The opinions expressed on the show are those of its hosts and guests and not of the opinions of KZSM or its governing body, SMTXCRA. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me on anchor, ancho dot slash the L&B show, I have about 29 other shows. And, or you can tune me in on KZSM on Thursdays from seven to eight, and my encores on Mondays from eight to nine. And my guest for today is Maxfield Baker, who's running for city council, place one. We're talking about development. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting educated. My next question to you, Maxfield, is about saving the historic buildings in San Marcos. I really want them saved. Are they in jeopardy? Are they going to be torn down?
1: Right. So this this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with zoning. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, the big one that really shocked everybody was the old telephone building that was torn down there on San Antonio Street. And it really lit a fire in a lot of people that had been already decrying a lot of this and saying we need to do something. And I think it is what finally put some action behind it. So, We now have a historical resources survey that we just finished and city council adopted to sort of start pulling policy from and start creating these policies to help us safeguard some of those historic assets that we have in our community. Because I believe, you know, what people want out of a historic district, the reason cities fight for them is because those are what give our community a sense of place and a sense of legacy. You know, people can walk down the street and say, I remember when I was a little kid seeing that building and then they're walking their grand kids there and 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 that's just beautiful you know that's that's where communities thrive is when they can have that sense of passing on to their children and so some of the great things that came out of the historic survey is a demolition permit request where now there will be a process in place to sort of slow down that demolition and require these developers to be a little more forward about their plans for those properties. So before, you were able to kind of just get your demolition permit, even though you had been thinking about it for over a year and making all these plans, you could do it within just a few months. And so now we've extended that to be a little longer to give folks more buy-in into that process. And in some regards, that that might actually come down to directly even paying and moving a historic building if the developer really wants to build there and not incorporate that building in some way into that structure, then it is feasible in some ways to just move that historic building to another place it's really costly not my favorite solution to it but it it is it's better than losing that piece of history um if if it's tenable um so the other aspects of the my historic resources survey which you can find online and and read up more about um is to you know help expand historic districts where appropriate and then what i thought was most interesting is historic districts have a lot of regulations around them to determining you know how you can redo the outside of your house right. the, those kind of things you know what blinds you have all that stuff and so there are other alternatives to that that can help protect what are going to be historic districts you know that's the thing about history is that it's continuing to be added to right so when we talk about a historic building we're talking about something that's over 50 years old right and so when we did the survey we recognized because of a limited funding for it that we could only cover certain sectors of San Marcos and unfortunately, the east side, as is often the case, was left out of that survey. We are planning and have directed city staff to make sure that when we do the next survey, that we do take a look at those neighborhoods because they are historic. You know, they're not these big, beautiful mansions, But they're historic homes that have real, you know, legacy and legends that lived there and helped form our city.
0: What's the east side?
1: Uh, The east side would be like on the other side of 35. So um, basically, where we are now is the east side of of San Marcos. So, you know, the downtown historic district around San Antonio Street and everything. And then you go down Guadalupe, it's El Barrio de Pascado. They just did a big mural for it over by the meat market as you're coming up Guadalupe. um, and, you know, kind of across from the bowling alley, there's the school there. Back behind right. there, there's a whole neighborhood near the fish hatchery. Oh, and a lot of that is, is on the edge of being historic. Uh, That's just right. because it's been built for a long time. Even my neighborhood, Rio Vista Terrace, you know, those used to be like army style living back in the day. Uh, when we had more of a, a base presence here in San Marcos and you could still see remnants of it you know I live on Haines Street and most of those are duplexes because that's where the lower ranks would stay and oh, then really? as you go up field Street cheatham and sycamore the houses get a little nicer get a little bigger and that's where the the higher brass would live and so you know we have history all around us and, right and we have to recognize that you know it's only the limitations of funding that are keeping some of these districts from being fully actualized and fully protected
0: oh i didn't know that i mean this subdivision that we're in is um 10 years old 12 years old you know so uh, another fifth another 40 years and mm-hmm. we'll be a historic district i think people need to be informed about all this and i think people move here because St. Marcus is historic, and right. it's different than all the other places, and we don't want to really muck it up with um, all these fancy modern buildings.
1: And, you know, you know, what we have to keep in mind— Like Austin. And, and what we have to keep in mind that we're, we're seeing examples of in Austin is, you know, as we grow as a city, you know, the, the dirty word is gentrification, right? And, right? and oftentimes, it's going to target neighborhoods— like mine and like Barrio de Pescado because if we get flooded out then that's easy property to pick up and buy and redevelop and so we need to make sure that we are are protecting our neighborhoods not just from overexpansion into their areas but also in terms of flooding and making sure that we're not displacing our residents with property tax increases and the like because that's one of the more devastating aspects to it you know if if my neighborhood was to be you know priced up to a point where all of us had to leave then that's where you get those out-of-state developers and and you know people with deep pockets that can come in buy a little group or cluster of houses and then densify the heck out of it and there you go you're experiencing gentrification and you know honestly when we had they introduced roundabouts into our neighborhood to me that was a, a big sign that hey this development's coming it's probably 10 years out you know before and I, i've seen some of the houses go up for sale and lots sit vacant and when I see a lot sitting vacant for a long time, right. it makes me think that they're waiting for a big development cash check. To come. To come, yeah.
0: So what will you do with city on city council?
1: You know, I think one of the great things that has come out of the uh, SMTX Housing for All survey, which is did a, a comprehensive study of what we could do to create more affordable housing. And one of the things they discovered was that displacement factor. So instead of letting people's homes age and age and age, and then eventually they're not livable, there is an effort now to help revitalize some of those houses and bring them up to code, make sure that they have sealed windows and other environmental needs met, um, and to, you know, kind of give them a little facelift so that those folks can pass that home onto their Children and their grandchildren, instead of having to sell it for you know whatever they can get.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. How um, how would people know about this program?
1: Right, that's always the toughest part is getting the education out there about these programs. And from what I've seen, the city has done a lot better job in the last year of holding more community conversations. Uh, we actually have one for my area, for my sector, on no, or sorry, on September 11th at the let's see, at the El Centro. Hispanic cultural it's not a museum but um, they're on Lee Street so you know that's gonna be an opportunity for us as a community to get together and voice our concerns and learn what applications and stuff we, we have access to
0: okay so how are you gonna get the information out to people
1: right it seems like the best way to do that is to either send them a mailer um, you know unfortunately a lot of people do just look at those and throw them in the trash the other best and tried and truest way just like we do in campaigns is block walking go knock on your neighbor's doors you know we have neighborhood Representatives, we have a neighborhood commission, we have a council of neighborhoods association, right? We have several of these different layers that can be better at communicating with their neighbors what those issues are. So I feel like you know a lot of times as a renter, we're sort of left out of those conversations. I currently rent. I don't. I don't own my. Oh, home. you're a renter. Yeah, I still rent. And so you know, I feel a little disconnected from my neighborhood commission because uh, you know, frankly, maybe I don't have as much of a say. I'm not getting the the news as much. um, But I think that's what we need to do. We need to get out there and knock on doors and show people, you know, you need to step up for your neighborhood. Otherwise you might lose it.
0: What about, how do you feel about the property taxes and the increase in that and
1: right so this is a a really difficult subject for the city to manage because it impacts our budget very heavily right we you know our lights are turned on our roads are paved because we have taxes and so you know the struggle is when we see the appraisals going up um, but we're not necessarily raising taxes then your effective tax rate still goes up right if the appraisal goes up then that's that's gonna make you pay more money and so what I think we need to do is empower more of our citizens to be able to fight those unjust appraisals. Um, and, you know, frankly, we've seen other, like Travis County, are suing their appraisal district to kind of take control of that because it's, it's an odd function of the appraisal district that their salaries, the people that manage it, are tied to the appraisal values for their area. Isn't that convenient?
0: You're kidding.
1: It, you know, you, you do a lot of research when you're running for office <laughs> and you come along with a you? lot of things to get frustrated about.
0: Appraisal grew, right? In San Marcus, Right.
1: Uh, I, I believe it's like a, a state level entity oh it's state I believe so
0: okay oh it's in Kyle mm-hmm. ours is in Kyle pays this salary the state
1: um that, that's uh not not a a figure I came across. Um, I, I just uh-huh. I read the, the portion that their salaries are tied to it. I'm not sure if it's you know a, a district type or. situation or if it is a state entity.
0: So what do they do?
1: You know, as far as I can tell, they go around and they look at the property and they look at the kind of state that it's in and decide you know well hey we've seen this rate increase and in all these other places in town so maybe that's effectually what we can do here or they simply see the Growth that's coming and will inflate that appraisal because they know what the land will be worth. Um, and you know that's that's where you get kind of an interesting balance between you know the cost of land here versus the cost of land in Kyle. How do how do they square those two? That they're not equal. They're not the same. So how do we make sure that we're giving something that's balanced?
0: and the city council has no uh, control over this group?
1: That's my understanding, right? I, I I think that our only power as city council is to maybe help them understand the legal aspects of their rights um, and, and who to go talk to. Uh, and again, that's, that's going to be a tough education campaign, but it's one that hopefully would put money back in people's pockets, so I think it's worth it.
0: Okay, because I know that homeowners... You know, they see that it's their house is worth more and they go, oh, good when I sell. But the thought that comes to my mind is, honey, you're living in it right now. You don't know what's going to happen when you want to go and sell it. Right. So you don't want such a uh, big increase because then you have to pay more taxes.
1: Exactly. Well, what happens,
0: and if somebody can't pay their taxes, what happens?
1: They, they've they got to move out. And so there, one of the things that was discussed uh, at the budget meeting was a tax freeze for senior citizens, 65 and up. You know, hey, we'll freeze the, the your rate. When you age in, when you apply, basically, I'm not sure what the application process looks like, but it was decidedly not implemented because of the significant increase or decrease it would have on our budget for the city. Um, So what I what I would recommend is, you know, that as part of that application process, we have some way to prove you are a cost burden or that you are experiencing a cost burden from that tax increase, Um, which would mean, you know, if it's a certain percent of your income, uh, then maybe we could consider freezing it at that point.
0: Right. But you're also asking these this group of people to come forth, come forward. They have to know who to talk to. They have to know what forms they have to fill out, and right. they have to fill them out. They're not going to do it. Right. They're not going to do it. And so, what you really need to do is go back and rethink. That something else takes place.
1: Yeah. Because and, and it's not
0: going to work. They're not going to come forward.
1: Right. And and so, even if we try to do a blanket freeze, there would still be that application process. And so, you know, it's a matter of. You know, unfortunately, people that are more well-to-do are more likely to be the ones that opt into that program and that apply for it. Right. Unlike, you know, maybe Spanish-speaking members of our community that those forms aren't even translated for them, which is often the case. We don't do a very good job of translating a lot of our documents.
0: Right, but it also could be just uh, me and Sid, like he'll fill out forms I do not. I don't fill out any forms. Yeah. So, um, but he, he'll, he'll pursue it where I won't. And we're considered, I guess, middle class. So I'm, I'm not even just talking about economically. I'm talking about there's some people who won't fill out any forms. Yeah. So that you really need to find out who these people are and quite frankly I don't know what you can do. Yeah, it's I don't you know, have that's, any suggestions. That,
1: that's the big question. I think what the best thing we could do is advocate for, you know, our city to approach the appraisal district and, and try to get a grasp on that from that level.
0: Right. Right. So then it'll just filter down. Right. And then maybe just go door to door and help people because even just, and I'm just going to digress a minute, even, even with the mail-in ballots, you know, I'm a precinct chair and I go there door to door to all these people. So I give them a mail-in ballot when the party doesn't, but even the change of address form, you know, I've come across people who said, did I fill out an address form? So it's just forms in general that people mm-hmm. just do not, do not keep track, track of. Yeah. They just don't do it. Okay, uh, we got a break and we'll be right back.
2: What do you plan on doing this Friday night? Yeah, me either. How about we spend it together? Fridays 8 to 10 here on KZSM.org. I'll help you relax and let go of the week and and play you some music, introduce you to some
0: people, uh, new friends. Right here at KZSM.org, San Marcos, Texas. Okay, we're back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Ellen B. Show, and I'm Ellen. And I've been talking with Maxfield Baker, who's running for city council, place one. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm learning a lot of things. Some things I don't like. Some things are very confusing. Okay, another confusing issue is the voting centers. Oh, how do you feel about voting centers?
1: Sure. So the idea behind a voting center was to help make it easier to vote on election day. And that's really the only change that these voting centers have put in place is that on election day, instead of having to vote in a specific precinct, now, just like during early voting, you can vote anywhere you like. Controversy that we saw around them this year and that we're still sort of Hammering the nails in about is whether or not we would have one of them on campus where it has historically been, and then one of the voting centers on the east side of town, over on Broadway, that's uh, one of the health centers here for San Marcos, was also a historically used uh, area. But they were taken off of the list this year because of concerns about parking, uh, name, namely parking. And so you know the idea was that the one on campus didn't service everybody that if you were a regular citizen that does isn't a student, doesn't have a parking pass, that you would have to pay to be in the parking garage to go and vote. And as we all know, that's you know too close to a poll tax. So that that's why it was removed as a voting center because we didn't have Easy access to parking. The university, in communication with the county commissioners court, as well as some student groups, um, figured that they could forego the cost of parking for that day and validate people's parking to let them go on campus and be able to vote just like anybody else. So that was a big win. You know, like I said, having worked at the LBJ Student Center and seen the lines of people in there, it's it's incredibly oh, it was important.
0: terrible last time.
1: Right? Yeah. They I mean, students like were waiting. Hours. Were three hours hours, right and so so to me that didn't justify saying we don't need one if anything like UT does we might need a second polling location on the Texas State campus well there are
0: 30,000 students right if half of them vote that's 15,000 students yeah I think they warrant their own voting center I'm sorry
1: yeah yeah and uh, so the other one on Broadway same concern it was about parking you know if a, a whole bunch of people showed up there then it would be Un, unserviceable, and you know, people would be parking on the street and all, all sorts of crazy stuff into the neighborhood. Uh, however, having voted there myself, you know, I never saw a, an overflow of people. Right, it was, it's probably one of the fastest places I've ever voted at in town. And so, you know, I think the change to voting centers is is overall a benefit. Um, Just because on election day proper, you know, if you see a spot that's really crowded, you can just go find another spot and go vote there instead of having to try to filter into your precinct. Right.
0: So they are doing the health center. Right. Right, which is good because the people in um, in this subdivision, when I would ask them, where do you vote? Oh, the health department. I said, there are others. Oh, no, we only go to the health department. So, yeah, you know, yeah, that it's was ingrained. What exactly. I don't understand is how come they don't use the library? Well, no, not the library, but the activity center. Everybody goes there. Yeah,
1: you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just plain and simple, I, I don't know why that wasn't one of the listed ones.
0: All right, continue. I'm sorry I interrupted you.
1: No, no, I you know, that's I, I think that kind of covers voting centers. They you know, they are a little controversial because we were removing some of them, but that was really it. Now that we've got those, you know, we they had a an emergency county commissioners meeting where we, you know, had a lot of people show up and say, we need these. We found justification from the university to put it there. And and as far as I know, those are moving forward and we're going to be able to vote there this year.
0: And then also from what I understand is that more will be added next year if if we need it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's always an option to add more. They, they could try to change them around again next year and, and give us less. You know, it's it's something we're going to have to be vigilant about. There Who was, controls
0: that? Does the city council or does the county commissioner?
1: County commissioners have a little more weight on it than we do. Um, and city council goes through an approval process for them. But it, it, it inevitably is something that kind of is handed to us from the county.
0: Oh, so do you have any weight with the county commissioners?
1: Uh, you know we do. Have, they listen to you. I, I believe so. You know, with Ruben Becerra being elected this year, he or this past year, he was the one that really made a push for these and and made sure we had that special meeting and brought the extra attention that we needed to the issue. So I I think you know we at least have the ear of two fine folks up there. Uh, that are making that push
0: right and then um jane um the the mayor right she was there too when she made a
1: right and and my my favorite part about jane is always how detail oriented she is so so for example the voting center at the lbj student center they when it was going in front of council she noticed that it had the general address for the university which is like 601 University Drive or something like that, and that right. would take you to the wrong building. So she made very sure that on the postage that goes out, telling people these are where all of our voting centers are and what we post online, right. it has the actual physical address for the student center, so people go to the right place.
0: Ah, okay. Because I know it was a mess last year. Yeah, and, I and and it was a mess.
1: And you know, students were skipping class to to stay in line and vote. It was it was a big deal. And you know, I'm I'm projecting we're gonna see. 20, twice that kind of involvement in 2020's election.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you think that there's going to be, because there are like 30,000 students, do you think that there'll be a place for a student either on the uh, county commissioners or on city council?
1: So back when I was serving in student government, we had a student government liaison to the city council. I'm not sure at what point that stopped happening. But I I think it is a pretty significant loss to not have an active member of, you know, some, you know, quote, unquote, prestigious organization on campus kind of reflecting some of those values. Uh, You know, on the other side of that, we have tons of students that feel empowered to show up to these meetings and be informed and fight for their rights. And, you know, they're doing a pretty good job of that on their own giving them a, a seat there though really codifies that we expect them to be there and that we welcome that into the conversation
0: so you would be for it
1: yeah yeah at least a, at least in a, an advisory role I'm not sure when, when it was uh, back when I was there the student government representative did not have a vote right. on anything right um you know I don't I don't know why they couldn't have a vote other than us having to rewrite part of our charter. I mean, that that would, that would be the main limiting factor is that we just don't have that already set in place.
0: All right. Okay. So how do you propose to get more people involved in local issues?
1: I think the main way that, you know, our city council members fuel that fire is to lead by example. Um, So, you know, if we want people riding bikes, then we should be riding bikes ourselves. If we I want to just
0: see Jane on a bike.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, if 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 it's important to you, <laughs> you, you so. where where you can lead by examples, <laughs> maybe the better right, way to say right, it is, okay. is when you should, right? So, you know, attending river cleanups, speaking out against, you know, offensive issues, right? We 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 should be leaders in that realm. And we should be willing and capable of speaking authentically about those issues instead of what we often see is you know people trying to play their cards close to the chest and say well you know i'm only gonna have to say as much as i have to on this issue instead of maybe taking a risk and spending a little of your political capital and being wrong and being educated on it afterwards that's that's the approach that i'm going to take i would rather Go out there and tell people what my assumptions and my perceptions are so that we can have that conversation and be able to sort of vet through those issues Uh, as opposed to kind of what we see now where when you hear a city staff or a city representative say something, we're always taking it with a grain of salt. You know, oh, well, they're only telling me what they have to. And I, I think we need to get past that by being a little more candid with our responses.
0: Do you think that the city council will produce a newsletter?
1: Um, you know, they, I they mean, have... I
0: know that people go online, and but for those of us who don't.
1: Right, yeah, they, they have a communications director, and I think that that would be perfectly reasonable for them to do. I'm not sure how we would cost that out. I mean, are, are you suggesting, like, just like a newspaper, we'd have one delivered to everybody?
0: Could just be one page.
1: Yeah, yeah, or
0: or you can email it to everybody. Yeah, in have an words, opt-in email. Right, right, right. I think I right. think that's
1: totally reasonable. Um, you know, and it would you know from my understanding, it should be simple enough to take what you're putting on Facebook, which we see them spending a lot of time doing. Take a little bit of that, put it in a newsletter, send it out once every two weeks, once a week. Yeah, yeah,
0: because Erin um, Zwerna uh, does that. Right, we're on a list, and she just I don't need a paper. Right, you know, newsletter, but it would be nice, you know, because there are a lot of people, me included, who don't quite know where to go.
1: Yeah, and and in that same vein, uh, you know, something that I would love to push for is to have that also translated into Spanish. Yeah, definitely. So many of our the members of our community are locked out of these conversations because we don't translate. You know, we spend thousands of dollars to create a survey about. My historic stuff and you know housing for all and it is not translated into Spanish that that to me is is wrong yeah no I'm
0: glad you brought that up no definitely definitely I've even I've even
1: made a point on my push cards like on my campaign flyers as I'm block walking to have that information I have an English and a Spanish so that you know voters know when voter registration is what I stand for when early voting is you know all that kind of stuff because that's that's important, and that's what our community is made of.
0: Oh, so, okay. So how do you how do you propose to get more people involved in local issues? Yeah, I,
1: I think doing more block walking, pushing those community conversations, you know, just really opening our arms to our neighbors instead of what we see a lot, which is, you know, I people barely know who their neighbors are. I think mm-hmm. we need to kind of start with that. Um, so programs like, you know, National Night Out or hosting block parties in your neighborhood, I think the city could do a little more to help push the those forward and maybe even lead on some of them. Because, you know, for instance, I hosted the first block party for my neighborhood last year. It had been years since we had had one. And, you know, when I started walking around telling people, you know, the kids were excited. We had over 80 people from my neighborhood wow. show up and we had a great time meeting everybody. We registered a lot of voters. It was a fantastic evening and something that, you know, we did end up partnering with the city on to help bring down the cost of it. And so making that more accessible. I think is the the first place to start.
0: Well, now we're right across the street from Bowie Elementary Mm -hmm. and you can hold a meeting there.
1: Right, You can hold a town
0: hall and people from this area would come. And there's like, you got a couple of hundred people there.
1: Right, exactly. You know who would come.
0: Well, Sid is saying, it's time to say goodbye. I learned a lot, Maxfield, and I want to thank you for coming. And if people want to help you or get in touch with you... How do they do that?
1: Yeah, I've got a pretty nice Facebook presence. You can always message me. If you want to text me, my phone number is 512-393-4287. If you want to go online and sign up as a volunteer to help me block walk or go up on campus um, or donate money to my campaign, you can go to Baker, B-A-K-E-R-F-O-R-S-M-T-X.com. All
0: right. So before I say goodbye, I got my poem. It was written February 22nd, 2015. 2.30 a.m. That must have been a night I couldn't sleep, huh, Sid? It says walk. Walk softly, tread lightly, leave no footprints, for this earth is only your home temporarily. So get involved, people. You gotta vote. You gotta know who you're voting for. It's not easy to know all the different candidates, but uh, it's worthwhile um, in the end. All right, have a good week. Bye.
2: Wake up to the Morning Glory Show with Tina every Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Let's wakey-wakey, eggsy-bakey with a fabulous mix of Christian and inspirational music in contemporary, rock, country, hip-hop, and more. Listen out for my community events about what's going on around town and hit the reset button with my meditation minute. All of that and more on the Morning Glory Show from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on KZSM.org.